Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 138, Glyndor and the Showdown. Now, by 1404, Glyndor had steadily built his position and influence in Wales and remorselessly pushed back the English. So this week, we're going to see if he can keep that going and achieve the ultimate goal, the big one, an independent Principality of Wales. In January 1404, Henry went to Parliament once again with his begging bowl. He'd spent a load of money saving the nation from being ruled by the Perses and done yet another campaign into Wales to boot. The French and the Bretons were causing mayhem in the Channel and burning coastal towns where they could. OK, so the Scots were licking their wounds for a change, but Glyndour was having a field day, the lad. Wales was simply awash with rumours about where he'd strike next and those massive castles that looked so impressive from the outside were so underfunded that the most needed item at the moment was a supply of walking sticks for the diseased, ageing garrisons. Carnarvon was held by 40 men, Harlech by just 5 Englishmen and 16 Welshmen, and Conwy Castle had 28 fighting men to defend it. It was reported that the rebels were moving men and cattle into Snowdonia in preparation for the spring campaign. And meanwhile, the English couldn't reach and resupply their fortresses by sea because the French were sailing off the coast and stopping them and the Irish Sea was no longer safe. So when Henry's Chancellor, Henry Beaufort, his half-brother by Catherine Swinford, opened proceedings at Parliament with a pitch for a fresh cash injection, Henry kicked back and waited for the votes to roll in. Surely Parliament would see he needed the cash. So imagine his annoyance, ladies and gentlemen, when he was instead presented with one Arnold Savage, representative for Kent and resident of the rather delightfully named village of Bobbing, elected by Parliament to be Speaker of the House. Savage returned the Commons' response to the King thus. 
The king has sufficient wealth to support and provide for all these policies, if it would be well guided, and for this reason do not trust in having any subsidy from the commons until we know how the king's wealth has been spent and in what manner. Last time Henry had been asked to explain the royal finances to Parliament, he had loftily declared that kings are not wont to render account. It's a nice line, isn't it? I must find a way of weaving it into a conversation. Maybe at the checkout at the next supermarket. I'm sorry, podcasters are not wont to render account. Well, Parliament had news for Henry. It was time for those accounts to be so rendered. So you better get rendering. Straight away... Arnold Savage got stuck in about a range of grants approved by what was called letters patents to what were called various ladies. Annuities, basically, granted by the king to the deservingly noble. Savage said, You should be well advised by your high council on these aforesaid matters because your commons have no wish to bear as much as they have previously. So the proposal was that these people should be paid just 10% of what they'd been granted. The king was horrified, and also at something of a loss. And you get this really rather feeble reply. It would be a great shame and disgrace to repeal and annul our letters of patent. I'm amazed the commons are so ill-disposed towards me. It's a feature of Henry's reign that Parliament doesn't see itself as the king's poodle, but equally, it began to show that it no longer saw dissent as the anteroom to rebellion. Instead, it saw itself as a kind of critical friend, doing the right thing by putting it to the king straight. That Parliament achieved this position during the reign is also partly due to the weakness of Henry's situation, a usurper beset on all sides and during a time of drastically falling royal revenues. But also, to put a more positive side, his inclination to emol, rather than confront, to find a way forward. The long and short of the January 1404 Parliament was that Henry found himself submitting to an awful lot of scrutiny in return for any money. So he was forced to submit to the semi-permanent scrutiny, for example, of a standing council. He was forced to slash his household budget from £42,000 to just a poxy two-bit no-good cotton-picking 12000 Now that is some dramatic decrease. And Henry must have hated this. He was now rendering a count in spades. Think of all those ladies he'd have to go and talk to about why their lifestyles would have to change. A bit humiliating for a king not to be able to distribute largesse. He was forced to name his council in Parliament which is tantamount to having his ministers approved by Parliament. Now that's a very slippery slope if you happen to be a king. He had to agree to all these changes before he was granted taxation. Here's that issue again, and a slope so slippery, monarch-wise, that you'd really need a toboggan. Probably most humiliating of all, though, was a rule saying no foreigners in the household. This casual piece of xenophobia, completely unremarkable in a world of xenophobia at the time, by the way, was aimed at Henry's new queen, Joan of Navarre. Married last year, and at 33, the oldest queen consort to marry a king of England. Poor Joan had to send all her Navarrese assistants and friends home. In the end, Henry got his tax. 
but it was worth little more than the rough end of the proverbial pineapple, probably yielding no more than 10,000 quid. But his talent was that he got on with it and made the best. He named his council in Parliament, but he named a council that was stuffed with his own placemen. Though interestingly, he appointed Arnold Savage to be one of them, drawing the sting of Parliament a bit by bringing him inside the tent rather than leaving him outside, showing his acceptance of the debate that they'd had. And in this he possessed powers of leadership quite outside the capability of the Richards of this world. But meanwhile, Wales was in uproar. The castles of Aberystwyth, right over on the west coast, and Harlech, a bit further north up the coast, were openly under siege, and the French were off the coast. Refer to the website for the map, by the way. Henry was pretty much beanless, and the air was full of sedition. The Countess of Oxford was found to have been plotting with the French. Some of the Earl of Northumberland's henchmen were refusing to open the gates of his castles to royal officers, even though he'd ordered them to. And in April, the worst finally happened. The mighty castles of Harlech and Aberystwyth fell to the Welsh. And you know, there was literally nothing Henry could do about it. He simply did not have the wherewithal. He didn't have two beans to rub together. So he withdrew back to the north where he could sit in his own Lancastrian estates and save some money. And so in Wales, Glyndur was now for all the world the Prince of Wales. Most of Wales answered to his writ. He held key castles within the Principality, and although the English still held some castles, they were islands in a sea of Welsh independence. And so it seemed fitting that in the summer of 1404, Glyndur held his first Parliament. It seemed fitting that he wrote to King Charles VI of France, who in one of his lucid moments agreed prince to prince that Wales and France should be allied and that the French would send an army to help. Glyndur debated which of the two popes he would support. So as far as the Welsh and Glyndur were concerned, they had arrived. Glyndur was no longer behaving like a rebel, he was behaving like a bona fide, honest-to-goodness, copper-bottomed, gold-plated prince, the real thing. Now, if you'd been a gloomy, glass-half-empty kind of person, then you might have said that the year hadn't quite been all it had cracked up to be and that the French support towards the end of the year really hadn't materialised, but in their halls in the winter of 1404-5, the bards would have ignored these souls and sung of the glories and freedom that had been won. While on the borders, the English lords like John Oldcastle on the borders of Herefordshire would have watched, and they would have worried, waiting for the next Welsh raid to carry cattle and grain off into the mountains to feed next year's offensive. The only real piece of satisfaction in the English camp would have been that in August the Parliament at Blitchfield finally agreed taxation worth having. So when it was collected, Henry, or possibly his son, Prince Henry, the rival Prince of Wales, would have a chance to mount a reasonable campaign. Now, I might just pause at this point, just briefly, to look around the Bolingbroke table at Sunday lunch table and take you briefly through the personalities there because Mary and Henry were a fecund pair, and I had to thank them down the centuries for allowing me to use the word fecund. What all that verbiage means is that I'm going to run through Henry IV's children with you. First of all, of course, we have Henry of Monmouth, who's 18, in 1405, born September 1386, and of whom, of course, we will hear much more, one of the contenders for the most famous King of England award as Henry V. 
made famous by Shakespeare, once more into the breach, blah, blah, Kenneth Branagh, dear, dear Larry, and all of that. Energetic, ruthless, mind like a bacon slicer, the real royal deal. Already looking to make a name for himself, and not that worried about who he has to tread on to make it happen. Now Henry and Mary were pretty regular, so next in line, just a year later. In 1387 is Thomas of Lancaster, 17 in 1404, to be made Duke of Clarence in 1412. He's had his first administrative disappointment already, sent over to Ireland by his dad with no money, no power, no influence. So before you could say knife, he was back in London. He's a big chap, well-knit, a fighter, but not an intellect. Plenty of charisma, but not a man to try and make a silk's purse from a sow's ear, make do, or invest a stitch in time to save nine. He's an aristocrat that believes in noblesse oblige, just possibly a little idle, more flashman than Tom Brown. Round of applause for Thomas of Lancaster, everyone. Next up, born 1389, would you believe, John of Lancaster, 15 at this point, and at some point to be made Duke of Bedford. One of the things I loved so much about a lad, about Edward III, was the story of Edward and his captains, the Black Prince, Northampton, Salisbury, a cascade of talented men loyal to their king, trusted by their king, all talented. Which is where John of Lancaster comes in. Despite dying in 1435 when things had gone backward in France, his reputation survived the disasters of Henry VI's reign. Brave, loyal to his brothers, patron of the arts, hot-tempered and relentless opponent of Joan of Arc. Appalling, appalling haircut. Seriously, dude, where's my haircut? But possibly the pick of the bunch of a pretty talented group. At this time, he's been sent to the north as Warden of the Eastern Marches, under the protection and tutelage of Ralph Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland, and counterweight to the Percy's. A round of applause, everyone, for John of Lancaster. The last boy is Humphrey of Lancaster, born 1390. He really doesn't get his chance until big brother Henry has croaked, but has maybe as much talent as John. Good Duke Humphrey is the name that survives of him. He tended to stay at home after the death of Henry V. He and his brother John will lock horns, and he'll lock horns big time with the other political leader of the time, Beaufort. Humphrey is an impressive leader and charismatic figure, but he's never quite there at the top of the tree, never quite got the cunning, guile and subtlety of John of Lancaster or Beaufort. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Eighteen months later, out popped another, Blanche. Probably the sob story of a pretty successful bunch. She was married to Louis of the Rhine Palatine, had one child, but died of fever while carrying her second and died at 17, the poor poppet. And then another 18 months, regular as clockwork, Philippa, born 1394, and therefore just 10 at our point in the story. She will be Queen of Denmark at the age of 12 and get to rule as Regent of Sweden at the age of 26, but she'll die 
pretty young at 36. So that's it, the Lancaster household. There are no more because Mary died giving birth to Philippa. Think about that, ladies and gents. Mary Bahoon had her first child at 14, Edward, who died after just a few days. She and Henry then waited a few years until 1386, when Mary was 18 and her first surviving child was born. In eight years, between 1386 and 1394, Mary had six children, and then died in childbirth. By golly. OK, so you might well ask why I've told you all about their kiddiewinks. Well, one thing is just that given the name problem, I have a rule to introduce hard and introduce early. If I warble about these people long enough, hopefully they'll be in your heads as they reach their time in the sun. But also because two of them, Henry and John, have a part to play in our next drama. The Welsh wizard had not been idle. As the bards wove their magic, poetry and music, Lindoa was forging more alliances than just with the French. He was talking to a man called Thomas Bardolph, a baron, an important man of the realm in his own right, but crucially, a man in sympathy with Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Who knows, but I figure Henry Percy was in no way reconciled to the results of 1403 and the death of his son, and who can blame him? Whatever the rights and wrongs of the cause, it can't be easy to see your son's head nailed to a wall, and then to have to beg for mercy to his killer. So Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, was plotting revenge. He was joined by a few other players. One of them was Thomas Mowbray, son of the Thomas Mowbray who was supposed to have fought Bolingbroke in a duel in front of Richard II, and had ended up dying in Venice. Now, the young Thomas was nubbut knee-high to a grasshopper, well, 19 actually, and clearly he was feeling hard done by. It's a bit difficult to see why on paper. True enough, Henry had used his lands in wardship to reward his followers, but as Thomas came towards his majority, he was clearly doing the right thing making sure those lands and incomes were returned to their rightful owner. So I'm guessing when I say that I assume Thomas Mowbray's antipathy to Henry is either because he's young, callow and easily led by hoary old conspirators such as Percy, or another emotional thing, he's the Marshal of England. But the real power that goes with that role is being taken by Westmoreland. The Earl of Warwick is being given precedence at council. All that sort of thing. The sort of things that aristocrats get touchy about. But either way, Thomas Mowbray, troubled skin of a troubled family, is no sooner Earl of Nottingham and Norfolk than he was looking to remove Henry from the throne. Now that brings us to Richard Scrope, Archbishop of York, second most powerful churchman in the country. Scrope appears to have had no involvement with the rebellion of 1403, and yet for some reason was going to be fully involved this next time. Why? I hear you cry. For the love of God, why? And frankly, people, who knows? His petition and claims against the king would be anodyne, standard stuff. Good governance, evil counsellors, oppression of the church, yada, yada, yada. It's really difficult to know what was going on in his mind. Except again, maybe just the personal influence of and a personal affinity with Henry Percy. Anyway, the deal that Bardolph stitched up for his leader Percy with Glyndua was called the tripartite indenture. The word indenture, we've mentioned it before, was when you cut a jagged line across a contract so that you could put the two together. So an indenture is a contract. In terms of the tripartite thing, do you remember a couple of episodes ago we talked about the mould warp prophecy? 
a dragon shall rise in the north. This dragon shall gather unto his company a wolf that shall come out of the west. Then shall come a lion out of Ireland. So the dragon from the north was pretty clearly going to be Percy. The wolf was Glyndua and the lion. The lion was Edmund Mortimer. Still with Glyndua, still head of the family with the best claim to the throne, short of actual possession. Of course, we don't know how much was planned and how much just fell out this way, but early in 1405 the tripartite indenture was in place. So after the small matter of removing the king, Percy would take England north of the Trent, Glyndua would take Wales and the Welsh borders, and Mortimer would take the rest, the South and Midlands. Simple. First off, then, the heirs to the throne, the young Mortimer boys, needed to be sprung from the castle at Windsor to rejoin their uncle Edmund Mortimer in Wales. Now, handily, they were being looked after by someone called Lady Dispenser, wife of the Earl of Gloucester, who had been executed in the Epiphany Rising and therefore had no great sympathy with Henry. After they'd managed that, the next stage would be war and mayhem. Glindo are attacking from the west, Percy, Mowbray and Scrope raising the banner of rebellion from the north, and Henry would be crushed between them all like a bug. Now Lady Dispenser had a duplicate key made by a compliant locksmith. And at midnight, on the 13th of February, the two Mortimer boys were led from their chamber, along with Lady Dispenser and her eight-year-old son Richard, and a squire called Morgan. And then they rode hard through the night for the Welsh border where Glyndua was waiting for them and from where they would fly to the safety of France. Their absence was immediately discovered on the morning of the 14th of February and Henry set off in hot pursuit, sending his half-brother John Beaufort and a group of men ahead. Near Cheltenham, Beaufort spotted dispenser in a wood and the bid for freedom had failed. The next throw of the dice was an attack in South Wales by Glyndua, an attack on the key castle of Usk, once owned by our good friend William Marshall. But the success of the previous year eluded Glyndua. Not only was his attack beaten off, but the English pursued and slaughtered the Welsh army as they ran, and for a while the English thought they'd killed the man Glyndua himself. In fact, it turned out to be his brother Tudor, but that was significant enough, and even more significant was the capture of Glyndua's eldest son, Griffith. Griffith was never to see Wales again, dying of plague in the Tower of London in 1412. Now the defeat of the Welsh army was bad enough. The death and capture of close members of his family seriously undermined Glyndua's reputation. Allegiances and confidences could begin to swing back to the English. So Henry now planned a major new offensive into Wales, with his son Henry leading an attack into North Wales while he took the south. But at the end of May, as he gathered his forces at Worcester, his son John of Lancaster wrote him a letter. John pointed out to Henry that a key confidant of Percy, Thomas Bardolph, had disappeared from the north. It was rumoured he was meeting with Glyndua. Henry reacted quickly again. He knew what this meant. He switched plans and headed for the north rather than Wales, and as he went, more news came in from his son. Northumberland had closed his castles against royal officials. Northumberland had tried and failed to ambush the Earl of Westmoreland. And most shocking of all, 
the Archbishop of York and Mowbray, the Earl of Norfolk, had led a mass of armed citizens onto Skipton Moor outside York. It was rebellion. Once Northumberland's ambush had failed, Westmoreland and John of Lancaster snuffed out the Yorkshire Rising before it could gather momentum. Percy was driven north to Berwick before they could gather a force of any size. And then John and Westmoreland headed for York. They invited the Archbishop of Scrope and Mowbray to supper. They laid out the wine and the food, a convivial supper, sympathetic ears, rather sneakily convincing them that they'd made their point things would be put right. While Mowbray and Scrope were having their egos stroked, a few miles away their citizen army on the moor was being dispersed by Westmoreland's men. And at some point in the evening, one of Westmoreland's retainers slipped into the room and whispered into his lord's ear that the job was done, and the army dispersed. And suddenly the tenor of the evening changed. The friendly atmosphere was gone. Hard-faced guards came in, seized both the Archbishop and the Earl of Norfolk, and locked them away behind bars. And so the rebellion was over before it had started. But something had changed for Henry. He had been charging all over the country like a blue-arsed fly, desperately stamping out fires for years, and enough is enough. Something had to be done. When Henry arrived at York, Archbishop Scrope asked for an interview and was refused. His crozier was taken from him, and this was a bad sign. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, Henry's long-time companion and confidant, who chaired exile with him, charged up to York like a scalded cat. To his relief, he arrived before Henry had been able to pass judgment on the Archbishop, so he sat Henry down and had supper with him. He found him in a foul mood, and pretty soon realised there was a genuine chance that something seismic could happen here, something which, depending on your viewpoint, had last happened only with Thomas Becket and Henry II, or in fact had never happened before. An Archbishop was in danger of being executed. So he reasoned with Henry, and eventually Henry told him to get some kip. There'd be a chance to talk more in the morning. But in this, Henry lied. In fact, as soon as the archbishop's snores could be heard in the palace, a small court was assembled. Both Earl of Northumberland and Scrope, Archbishop of York, were tried and both found guilty. To the shock and horror of all concerned, there was no remission for the archbishop no pardon in respect of his station. And the following day, before Arundel could react, both were duly executed. Poor Arundel. When he found out, he collapsed. Killing an archbishop was quite simply the political and social equivalent of a nuclear bomb. It was a seismic event, an absolutely shocking thing to do. Sacking the bloke, taking his lands off him, was one thing, fine. But for judgment, he should go to the Pope. What had Henry done? Arundel was horrified, and he wasn't alone. Surely God would now punish the king for what he'd done. Somehow, Henry was a most unlikely king to be doing this, pious as he was, determined to rule in consultation with his nobility as he was. Whether Henry snapped under the pressure, or just felt that the time had come when this stream of rebellion had to stop, is difficult to know, but despite the horror of Christendom that poured down on his head, the truth is that after 1405, Henry was never again in serious trouble of losing the throne. 
which did not mean he was now going to start enjoying himself. I suspect it was my grandmother who would gnomically remark, unhelpfully I thought at the time, that as long as I had my health, everything would be okay. Henry was about to find out how true that is. In the Middle Ages, anything unexplained was laid at God's pearly gates. The very night of Archbishop Scrope's execution, Henry's servants heard screaming from the king's room. Traitors! Traitors! You have thrown fire over me! They rushed into the king's room and found a king covered in red postules, screaming that his skin was on fire. Well, it was pretty clear to the world at large that this was the judgment of God on the man who had killed a man of God. To add to the woes of ruling a fractious kingdom, Henry now had to add the pain of constant illness, which at times laid him low and seemed to be on the point of killing him. In a way, it's the most impressive thing about him, his determination and sheer staying power to fight through this on top of all his political troubles. We don't know what the disease was. Leprosy, they said at the time, but it clearly wasn't that. We can't know as it happens. There's not enough information, and some diseases around at that time are no longer around now, and vice versa. But despite his pain, Henry recovered enough to campaign in the north and polish off the remaining Percy outposts, such as the rather magnificent Walkworth Castle. Then, just while he was hating it, he had more news. The French had invaded Wales. Henry had been poised for a great offensive into Wales when, distracted by the Perses, he'd hurried north. And so the Duke of Orléans had seen his chance. A substantial army of 800 men-at-arms, 600 crossbowmen and 1,200 foot had arrived in South Wales to be joined by Glyndwr with 10,000. 10,000, incidentally, has got to be an exaggeration, but whatever, a lot. In the annals of glorious French military exploits, the invasion of Wales is far from the largest chapter. It all started a little shakily when they besieged the castle, saw some ships coming up the creek and legged it as hard as they could. But they pulled themselves together and did manage to burn a few villages and finally even Carmarthen Castle. So, emboldened and invigorated, the French and the Welsh set out for England and in August they arrived outside Worcester. Whatever his medical condition, Henry did his normal thing and flew down with an army and before he could say Camembert, he was staring at the French and Welsh invaders with his army behind him. So this was it. This was the showdown. This was the moment when Glyndor had the force to defeat the English, the force to win his prince's crown forever. Never again would the Welsh be oppressed by the English tyrant. So what followed was at once the most bloodless and most decisive showdowns in military history and the biggest anticlimax imaginable. The two armies faced each other for eight days. The French and Welsh had no intention of attacking an entrenched English army supported by a bunch of longbowmen. But Henry knew full well time was on his side. He didn't have to go anywhere. The Welsh had to win their independence. They had to take it from him. So whatever it was, the French or the Welsh, they bottled it. Everything Glyndower had done had led to this, and he bottled it. 
They turned back and Henry watched them go. And I suspect that both Henry and Glyndwr knew it was all over. The French, a foreign power, had come to help a Prince of Wales and they'd return empty-handed. Because by March 1406 they were gone and they would not be back in force. And without foreign help, Glyndwr knew his cause was doomed and defeat was just a matter of time. All of which, of course, didn't stop Henry getting it in the neck from Parliament. The long Parliament of 1406 lasted pretty much all year and gave Henry a good old beating. The Parliament produced a petition of 31 articles. Each one of those 31 articles reflected bitter criticism of the King. The phrase evil governance was used, which was generally a sign that Parliament was seriously cross with the King, but not quite far enough to address him directly as the culprit. The charge was good old overspending, taxation, taking supplies at will, the so-called purveyance. So Henry, ill and tired, was forced to accept these 31 articles that slashed his household budget to a two-bit, no-good, cotton-picking 6,000 quid, which was not enough to keep a fly alive, in his opinion. But to get the tax, he had to say yes. If the Queen came to stay, the rules now were that she had to pay out of her household alliance, a sort of interpocket accounting. The King's Council was to take over the administration of Henry's wardrobe, chamber and household offices. Basically, if Henry wanted to wipe his nose, he'd have to submit a form in triplicate. But if Henry wanted taxes paid, that was the price. And so he paid the price. So next week, we'll complete Glyndwr's story and spend a little more time in the company of the other Prince of Wales, Henry of Monmouth, as he tries to bring the Welsh to heel. So that's it for the moment. My grateful thanks to monthly donators Mary, Amy and Oak, and new generous donators Harold, Richard, Kimberley, Geoffrey and Paul. Meanwhile, thanks to everyone who comments on the website, or iTunes, or joins the Facebook group. And indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck all, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 